0: Welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today's guest is Chris from the Fish Just Jams website and app. We all love fish songs, but sometimes you just want to get straight to the jams, and that's what Chris and his brother Brian created, a database on a website and an app that allows fans to do just that. In addition to Just Jams, Chris is here to talk about the second set of an Out of Nowhere and In the Middle of Nowhere show, November 16th, 1996, at the Civic Auditorium in Omaha, Nebraska. 1996 has taken a little bit of a beating on this podcast, and in general, when it comes to fish. We'll get into it deeper, but myself and many guests have referred to 1996 as an off year, or as an in-between year, when it comes to fish's development. I've certainly realized the folly of that description, and according to Chris... It's this type of show that caused that type of generalization in the first place. While the second set is everything anyone could ever want in a fish show, the first set is nothing remarkable. So in a time when it wasn't so easy to just pick and choose which part of a show you wanted to hear, anyone listening to this first set may incorrectly assume that there's nothing special about the show in general. And that's one major reason that we are reviewing just the second set of this 1996 show in Omaha. So let's join Chris to talk about Trey's percussion setup in 96, standing up during Kung, and turkey legs as we discuss the second set of Fish's performance from November 16th, 1996 at the Omaha Civic Auditorium. Chris from Just Jams, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to be here. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. I'm so excited to have you on, not only for the show or at least the set that you picked for today, but I genuinely want to take a moment before we even talk about anything about Omaha or November '96. I want to take a genuine opportunity to say thank you because I'm a teacher and a lot of people think that a teacher's job is just the 40 minutes in front of a bunch of students teaching them whatever is being taught. But like any other job, there's a lot of clerical work. There's a lot of paperwork to be filled out. There's a, not a lot of downtime, but stuff where you're not actively in front of people. And your website or your app, Fish Just Jams, has gotten me through so many hours of otherwise mindless, numbing, boring work that I have to say thank you straight up before we get into anything for not only the idea that you had, but that you've executed and I'm sure it's brought joy to hundreds, if not thousands, of other fish fans. So, my genuine thanks for what you've done.
1: Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Uh, that's definitely probably one of the best uses for it, is to kind of help kill some uh some time as you're preparing for things or working or mindless tasks. So um, yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly what it's for. Well, before we get too deep into it, I
0: want to tell the audience that. Today's set that Chris picked, and we'll get into why it's just one set, is the second set of November 16th, 1996 at the Civic Auditorium in Omaha, Nebraska, the one and only time Fish has played Omaha, though not the only time that they've played Nebraska. We'll get to the set and the music a little bit later, but it should be noted that Chris is one of the creators of Fish Just Jams. Chris, why don't you take a few minutes and inform anyone listening what
1: Fish Just Jams is? Fish Just Jams is essentially a database of jams um, that as of now has over 3,400 tracks, and that database can be filtered down to produce the particular playlist that you want at any time. You can change the years, the song, uh, the tour, Um, If you only want to hear stuff from fall tours, you can do that. Broken down by location, by duration. Um, So, like, if you really wanted to listen to only Yamar and Gumbo and Simple Jams from even years, you can do that. You can set it up like that. So that's what your playlist is. It's a fresh experience every time. If you went to the top and hit play and then turned off the shuffle, it would play through continuously for over a month before we get to repeat any tracks. So every time you visit, there's a fresh experience. Um, so you get n- new set of jams every time you, uh, you open up the app. Um, and you can be as involved as you want to be, or you can just hit play and then just ignore it. So you can kind of go th- Through and it can get you exactly what you want to listen to at any time.
0: And I kind of like that because as a fan, we've come to the complete opposite end of the spectrum from when I first got into fish in the mid 90s, where you would take anything you could find, regardless of quality, regardless of first set or second set, whatever it took, you would get more live fish, whatever you can get your hands on. Now in 2022, it's the complete opposite end of things where fish is almost disposable. You could get any jam, any song, any performance from any time, literally at the click of a few buttons on your phone in your pocket. So the fact that your site has all these different Categories, all these different genres, all these different ways to sort what's available makes it so much easier for me because I'm the type of person who's paralyzed by choice. So when your <laughs> when your Twitter feed, which you're very active on, when you share what you're listening to, says something like "I'm listening to this playlist of jams from Simple from 1996 to 1998," I, it makes me think something like, "Oh, I never in, in a million years would have thought to listen to just that." Let's give it a shot. And it makes things easier for me. Plus, your site is very easy to navigate.
1: Well, thank you. The uh, We have things uh, like under the playlist filter. We have uh, our mood playlists and our themed playlists. So you can have like your if you're looking for just bliss jams or if you're look, listening for dark evil jams, you can go and focus on just those. And you can also combine them. Uh, I like to combine, say, like the Bliss and Dark Evil playlist together sometimes. And then we also have what we call our top shelf series, which we take all the years that we've covered, which is 93 till today. We choose the top, what we qualify as the top 25% of the jams from that year. So it can do two things. It's something that if you're not familiar with the year, you can go through and find out a bunch of jams that you didn't really know. It can also lead you to some full shows if you can look at the things and be like, oh, wow, there's three jams from this show. I'm definitely going to listen to that one. Um, And if you already know all that, well, then it's just a great playlist to listen to.
0: You mentioned we. Who is we? And can you tell us a little bit about the history of Just Jams, where it came from? I mean, the idea is quite simple but the way that you've developed it is not as simple. Where did it come from and how did it develop?
1: Well, uh, we is uh, me, uh, Chris, who runs the social media side, and then my brother, Brian, who runs all the technical stuff. He built the uh, website, he built the app, and he um, came up with all the the logic behind it. This was something that we kind of started in... Early 2000, we had had a, there was a a 1997 uh, Just Jams compilation that we had downloaded years and years ago, and we were like, why don't we just do that with some of the other like more recent years, and started doing that, and then slowly started going back through 1.0 and adding all of those years together. Not necessarily with the intention of putting it into a website, initially it was just, for our own listening pleasure, and make them available for download. And then I said, you know, the best way to do this, it, I said, if, if you had a website that could stream this stuff, people would really go for it. They might not want to download it, but they could really go for it if they're streaming it. So we tried it. We put it out, and uh, it's been, you know, pretty big, uh, pretty pretty nice success for us so far. Is there a certain time limit or a certain length requirement? that
0: you and Brian have that a certain instrumental part has to count as quote a jam, because this is hotly debated among a lot of Fish fans, (laughs) especially people who wrote like I used to be obsessed with fish.net and set lists where it used to say, for example, on April 3rd, 98, the Island tour where it would say roses are free. And then uh, a segue, a little arrow that would say Nassau jam. I, I mean, where does it start? Where does it end? when a jam has to be included uh, or should be included on the site. I'm thinking in 2019, which was the era of the micro jam. It must've driven yeah. you guys crazy.
1: We don't have guidelines that it has to be this long or this short or, or anything like that for it to be a jam. And at this point, it's really just repetition and familiarity with it. I can just look at the track timings and the set list and be like, Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, that I don't need to include that down with disease. That was an early first setter that's only nine minutes. I don't need to include that. But holy cow, that camel walk um, had a little bit extra. So yeah, I'm definitely going to cut that off or something.
0: I love what you said a little bit earlier. This never occurred to me while using your site that you start in 1993 because everyone refers to fish as a jam band. And the low-hanging fruit joke from non-fish fans is, Oh, well, they play one song for 40 minutes. You know, what kind of bullshit <laughs> is that? But when you go back and we've done this on this podcast with some guests who have chosen earlier Fish songs from like or earlier Fish shows from before 1993, they were not a jam band. You could listen to like 12 or 14 songs in one set in 1991 yeah. or 1992. What if are there any jams that you could think of that would be that would predate 1993? Or if one showed up, are, would you include it?
1: Yeah, there are definitely a few. Um, what we try to do is we try to go comprehensively through a year. And that's kind of why we've uh started at 93, is because 93 was kind of the first consistent year where you could have open jamming. You know, in ninety-two, yeah, you could definitely find some jams uh throughout '92 and stuff like that. But it would be a little bit more hit and miss. You could go like a week and a half of shows and not really have anything that would qualify. So that's kind of why we started with, with 93 before that, it was kind of, there was jamming, but it was more like structured jamming like solos more than like group band jamming. If I'm thinking sense.
0: about like foam, for example, in 1992. Yes.
1: yes. Yeah, that's a great example of, of one that um, would be kind of hard to for us to cut up as well, uh, simply because of the way that the song is kind of laid out with uh, you know jams throughout the middle and stuff like that. So.
0: And what do you do for certain songs where a version of Tweezer, where there might be singing in the middle of it, but it's definitely Tweezer and they go back to, to uh, the jam? Here and there. I don't know if tweezer is the best version because once they're done with the vocals, they're usually completely done. But there are versions of it. Like I'm thinking October 30th, 2010, when they did the Led Zeppelin uh yeah. segues, where it's an awesome gem right in the middle, but all of a sudden they're singing whole lot of love or heartbreaker. Yeah. Do you like copy and paste and just like cut around like surgery? Do you cut around the vocals and <laughs> then put the put the musical continuation in later? How do you deal with? Fish's goofiness when it comes to that?
1: Well, Tweezer Fests are the are really the best example of this. Um, ones from like uh, the MPP in, in 14, or the one earlier this year, where they'll play Tweezer, there'll be a jam, and then they kind of go into a song. And then out of that jam, they will just kind of throw a little bit of Tweezer jamming on there. Um, some of those are kind of hard and, and don't really work well for, for our purposes. But sometimes, like this year, the Tweezer Fest from this year was from, uh, what show was that, The Man?
0: I was out of town for
1: okay. almost we were- the
0: whole first half of Vicious Sword, so I am not the authority this year.
1: When they would go back into the jam, there was actually a meaty enough part of the jam. Like, if it's just 90 seconds, then I'm probably not going to include it. But if it's four or five minutes, then I, I pasted those together. Uh, for this, for the, for this tweezer uh, on this one.
0: Do you get um, statistics or a certain sort of um, data about which playlists are most listened to, least listened to, uh, over a ninety-day period or thirty-day period? Does that come through in your website hosting? Uh,
1: yes, in so the analytics, um, I can look back. I've actually uh, a couple months ago. Um, It was just our seven-year anniversary of of the website going live. And so I went back and was like, over the entire seven years, what has been the most popular playlist? What has been the most popular track that was played? um, The most popular versions of each song? And so I can kind of go through and uh, pull all of that together. And I think I've done that a couple times. Uh, I'll do that sporadically just to be like, all right, well, this is um, all the stats from this year. Uh, like everyone started listening from 2022, this is the the statistics for that. So we have that um, capability to look up things and look up the most popular playlist. The Dark Evil playlist is the most popular playlist, almost double over any other playlist.
0: Huh, I wonder why that is. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shitting on it. I mean, one of my favorite jams ever is from December 30th, 2012. The Carini yeah. from that yep. show is like the darkest fish jam I've ever heard live aside from pretty much everything in 20 in 2004, but uh, the most cohesive dark jam I've ever heard. Yeah. I just I wonder why the fish crowd um, slants that way. I don't know. That's for another conversation, uh, but to yeah, wrap this, to wrap this up, Chris, where and how can fans access just jams you have the floor brag about it and tell us where to find it
1: yeah no problem uh it's uh the website is just uh www.fishjustjams.com and then we also have a free ios app in the app store either one of those you can access um fish just jams at any time and uh, whether you need us for five minutes five hours or five days we've got enough jams to keep you occupied
0: Well, Chris, we know what you and your brother, Brian, do for the fish community, but let's hear more about you as a person with the lightning round.
2: Attendance bias lightning round. Chris,
0: what was your first fish show and what do you remember most about it?
1: Uh, First fish show was 1024.95 in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, Also went the next night in uh, 1025 in St. Paul, but uh, the first night the main thing I remember is uh, that show had the mother of all antelopes. That antelope is uh, really the whole second set is very, very, very good, um, but the antelope and the is the one that's that's well known from that show. So that that's probably the thing that I remember the most, outside of just being overwhelmed. with the crowd and everything that was there. What was there? What do you remember about the crowd? Well, I, I had uh, been listening for probably a year or two and had been training tapes. So like I knew song wise and like musically, I was fa- fairly prepared, but uh, I hadn't been to anything like that, uh, l- like a fish show. Um, so it, just getting to the lot and just kind of taking it all in as a geez, I think it was probably 19, uh, 19 or 20. Um, was just uh, a lot to uh, to take in and just kind of, you know, soak up. What was your most recent show, and what did you think of it? Well, uh, as of now, my most recent show was Dick's uh, 2019. Um, but uh, you know, give me another week and a half, and my most recent shows will be Dick's uh, 2022. Oh, um, that's exciting!
0: By the time this yeah. airs, you will have already gone to it.
1: Yes. So I guess in that case, my most recent show uh, is happening in a week.
0: (laughs) Well, well Well, that kind of feeds right into the next lightning round question because it deals with time travel. If you had a time machine and you could travel back to any fish moment, whether on stage or you could be a fly on the wall for a conversation, for example, where and when
1: would you go? You know, I thought about this a bunch. I think what I settled on is Halloween 1994. And the reason is, you know, the first Halloween, first cover album, but no one really knew what exactly they were going to be doing. No one knew what album they were going to do. No one even really knew for sure they were going to do an album. They were just donning a musical costume. So, like, nobody had any idea what they were going into. And there was a three-set show that I believe went to, like, two or something in the morning. Yeah, um, I think I've heard rumors of
0: it going even later, like three or three thirty, because I yeah. I know it ends with the squirming coil, right? And I remember yeah. reading, I think it was in the Farmer's Almanac, one of those uh, like fan books that people were walking out. It was almost like a lullaby of Paige playing the piano, <laughs> you know,
1: playing people to sleep because it was so late. I mean, I'm a I'm a Beatles fan as well, so that would have been uh, nice as well. I would have at least like you know, recognized it and stuff. But um, the sense of not knowing what's coming, they started with the Dark Side of the Moon uh, fake out um, before they went into the Ed Sullivan and then right into the Beatles. That had to have been a moment that, like, nobody knew what was coming. No one knew what was... They were all experiencing it together, just trying to figure it out at the same time. And there was no fish
0: bill yet. That came the next year with Quadrophenia.
1: Yep. No fish fill. What is your favorite post-show snack? Uh, I'd probably say some uh, simple and easy, like a, a grilled cheese in the lot or something. Either that or just uh, some type of little uh, crackers or snacks, something like that, that I might bring and leave in the car. More of a personal
0: question for the lightning ground that I don't know if I could ask a lot of other people this. If your website or app completely malfunctioned, right? Crossing my fingers for those of you at home that it never <laughs> happens. But if in this world your website or app malfunctioned and you were stuck with just one year's worth of jams, which year would you want it to be and why?
1: Um, I would go with 1997. And the reasons are a couple. Uh, obviously, 97 is a high point year. Just as far as Fish Just Jams goes, there's 276 uh individual jam tracks for that year that's the most of any year and you actually people do you know tend to think of it as just the funk year but there's a lot of different variety in there like if i went with say just 95 then i don't have the option of you know funk and dance parties and stuff like that whereas i do have that in 97 a lot of that's funk and dance parties but there's also the psych. And, uh, you know, the crazy guitar shredding as well. So kind of 97 to me kind of has everything that you would want to have in one if I only had one year.
0: And finally, Chris, what is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show, whether it's inside the show or outside of it?
1: All right. Well, the weirdest thing I've ever seen at a fish show actually happens during this show. So I'm not going to spoil that part, but I do have a backup. All right, Um, good. Let's hear the backup. The weirdest thing. The, the second weirdest thing I've ever seen at a fish show was at uh, Oak Mountain in Alabama in 2014. Um, during the second set, uh, they're playing Ghost, and I'm, you know, it's not really a lawn there, but I'm in that type of area of the, of the amphitheater. And I look down to my right, and there's a guy, a big guy, who is standing there eating a turkey leg. And I mean like a renaissance (laughs) fair type turkey leg, like as big as your forearm type of turkey leg. And he is eating it and swinging it around and like dancing with it and like using it for like to hit the beat on Ghost. And I am sitting there watching it going, there's no way that guy really has a turkey leg here, there? But apparently they sold them there at the show. I want to find him and have him on the show. I can't imagine eating a turkey leg during a during a show. When was this show played?
0: Fish's Fall 1996 tour totaled 35 shows. It began in October, all the way in Lake Placid, so upstate New York. Stayed on the East Coast all the way through the beginning of November, so half a month on the East Coast. They played two midweek shows at MSG. I remember because I wanted to go, but. I had just turned 14 and I was not allowed. The tour moved and hovered in the Southeast and then the Midwest for about two weeks, including today's show in Omaha. They now migrated toward the Pacific Northwest at the end of the month. Uh, they played in Spokane, Washington. They went down the West Coast and it ended with a famous show that was covered on this podcast on December 6th, 1996 at the Aladdin. And when I began this podcast about two years ago, I was of the mind that 1996 was, quote, an in-between year. Like, it didn't have its own distinct personality. It didn't live up to the crazy, insane rock and roll of 1995 or, like we just talked about, the cow funk slash machine gun rock dance party of 1997. And whenever I said or posted this opinion on social media, I would get like a 50-50 reaction of people either agreeing with me or a simple response of LOL. 1996 as an in-between year. Like, I'm the idiot. But after reviewing a handful <laughs> of shows in 96, I've come around to the people who dismiss or, you know, that laugh at me. I'm with them. 1996 was an
1: incredible year for Fish. Yeah. Uh The way I uh, look at it is kind of like, let's say you follow a sports team and they win the championship in 95 and in 97. And in 1996, they went out in the first round of the playoffs. All right, all the all the pieces are still there. They just might not have had the exact chemistry or whatever to put it together to, to take it to the very top uh, that year. Doesn't mean that 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 it's a bad year overall. Just doesn't have as many highlights and full shows perhaps as some of the other years. But ninety six. If you miss, if you skip out on ninety six. You're doing yourself a disservice. I agree with you a thousand percent.
0: And I'm a Yankees fan, by the way. So a lot of that people who are, <laughs> I I've heard it all. Uh, but a, lot, <laughs> a lot of my contemporaries, in terms of age, right? I'm about to turn forty years old. So I was in high school in the mid to late nineties when it was the dynasty with the Yankees and Jeter and Eddie Pettit and all that, where it became kind of brainwashed that fans of my age are it's a world series or nothing that the that the season is a waste if the yankees don't win the world series and when i was like 16 i bought into it but since i've matured and learned more about sports and become in contact with people all over the country i realized how stupid that is because if you do that you limit yourself kind of like what you were saying to the little joys that can come out of a really good and successful season, even if it doesn't end with a World Series trophy. Now, looking at '96, they were Fish was adjusting their to their newfound popularity as arena rock headliners. They discovered 2001 as a jam vehicle. Before that, you would know as better as anyone. It was mostly three or four minutes, usually yep. as a set opener. Uh, there's Remain in Light on Halloween. By the way, you know, the Clifford Ball, uh, they built on their sense of humor. That didn't go away with the M set. And we'll talk about more of their sense of humor about today's set. Uh, And any number of musical highlights, the Clifford Ball, you know, they they accomplished so much. And yet people, and I used to be one, just kind of gloss over it. So I want to ask, who were you in the fall of 96 and what led you to Omaha, Nebraska?
1: Um, Well, in... Fall of 96, I was enrolled in classes in the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. I would not necessarily be able to give you attendance bias on any of those classes (laughs) for that uh, particular semester, Um, but uh, that's kind of where and who I was then. In 96 was an odd year for me in uh, seeing fish. It was my second year. I saw three shows that year. I was living in Northwest Wisconsin, and the three shows that I saw were uh, Jazz Fest in New Orleans, 1018 in Pittsburgh, and 1116 in Omaha. I did not see the show at Alpine, which was very close to me, and I didn't see the show at St. Paul in the fall, that was also very close to me. Just odd the way that things worked out, that's kind of where I was. And that's, you know, kind of why I have attendance bias towards this show.
0: Well, what led you to Omaha? Because I don't, I'm not so great with American geography (laughs) in terms of distance, but I would have to imagine that Omaha is quite a distance from Wisconsin. Am I wrong?
1: It was a 10 plus hour drive.
0: Yeah, Um, that's what I was
1: thinking. I had uh, other friends who were going And uh, I was just like, I'm going to hop in. I don't know why I'm going to see this particular show. I don't know why I'm traveling 10 hours just to see the one show and not like two, three, or four. But um, the decisions that you make as a 20-year-old sometimes are not always the brightest. Amen to that. And that can be (laughs) its own
0: podcast as well, by the way.
1: Call it, I was 20. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. And survive.
0: Hi, everybody. Brian here to welcome you to the set break of today's episode of Attendance Bias. First, thank you for listening. And second, just a quick reminder to tell you that even though Attendance Bias comes to you for free, it does take a lot of work and it does take quite a bit of money to keep the lights on here at production. So I just wanted to ask a small favor, if you could support the podcast in any number of the following ways, if you could leave a review or a rating of it on whichever podcast app you use, if you could spread the word telling a friend or someone you think may be interested in it about it, or probably the most concrete way is to go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendance bias and donate however much you can financially to help with the continuing costs of attendance bias. So thank you again so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the second half of today's episode. We mentioned just once or twice leading up to this point that the show date is November 16th to 96. but our breakdown, this part of the podcast where we go song by song, we're only going to talk about the second set. Can you uh, give us a reason why we're focusing on this and uh, why we're, or summarize at least, the first set?
1: Well, the first set is fairly non-eventful. There's not really anything that breaks out of like what you would anticipate for that particular version of uh, of the songs that they played. There were some there were some nice things. Uh, and you know, I caught my first old home place. Um, uh, There's a nice Bowie uh, first Frankenstein for me. There was a Lawn Boy. Um, so I mean, th- there were there were good songs. Um, but it just wasn't anything that was kind of standout. And frankly, it's one of the reasons why I think people can tend to overlook 96 is um, that there maybe aren't complete shows. They would look at this first set and be like, I'm not going to bother with this show. So that that's, that's kind of why. And to your earlier
0: point about 1996 as a whole, if you skipped over this whole show just on a – look or listen of the first set you are doing yourself a disservice so let's get yeah. right into it set two <laughs> opens with LaGrange and I would guess that this is probably one of the most sought after fish covers for the band to bring back I wish they would you know and this always seemed to be the sort of thing where old time fans older than me at least would say oh they got to bring back LaGrange, the ZZ Top cover what was it like to open with this for you and the
1: audience it was completely unexpected. Um, I think at set break, my uh, my friends had been like, "All right, let's uh, who can call the cover for the encore?" But then they came out and they ended that right away by just blistering, absolutely blistering version of Lagrange. I mean, once it gets going, you know, I look at the the video on uh, on YouTube and it's just four heads bobbing in unison while Trey just lights his guitar on fire.
0: And it should be noted to your point just now, this whole show is available on YouTube. You could see it. You could see it all happen. I did a little bit of research on the statistics for LaGrange. It's one of the oldest fish covers. It debuted on August 9th, 1987 at Nectars. So not only that, but as of today's recording, our conversation right now, it was last played on July 8th, 2012 at SPAC. And that performance was the first and only time that it's been
1: played since 1.0 yeah that's that that's pretty surprising because it's because it's a fun ripping cover and a familiar just, one everyone yeah, knows this just, song yeah it just gives Trey plenty of time to just uh just get a guitar workout in and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and then just shred it it
0: And it speaks just a little bit to that transition between 96 and 97. It's a little bit less freak out on a guitar solo song and more hold back a bit and let the whole band shine as a unit, even though there's plenty of guitar solo freak out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that, that definitely is the case because the entire band is just raging. It is not something where Trey is playing a solo over... Um, you know, three other guys who just happen to be playing the same thing, and it could be any three guys. Now, they are absolutely just raging, the entire band is synced in. because you know the first set was you know kind of uneven and up and down um but here they just seem completely locked in and they're a whole unit
0: and they're locked in especially in the next song which for me when i listened to the show or the set this was my highlight just listening they played runaway jim which is perfect they nail that soft loud dynamic where I'm gonna forgive everyone who's listening for me singing it, but when they do the, uh, they get real, real soft, and then um, Trey comes back into. Sorry, everyone. Yeah, but it's 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 like a magic trick.
1: It was it was as a terrific version it's really what you are hoping for when whenever they start runaway gym that's what you want is one of those where they just break it down so quietly and then all of a sudden it's just right back through the roof and the energy you know it's coming and you're just waiting for it to just explode
0: and it doesn't explode it actually becomes very atmospheric
1: it does it, it gets kind of out there, it is not a typical runaway gym jam, in that it gets kind of out there and weird fairly early on. It doesn't take like the normal standard approach for for a runaway gym. It pretty much goes for it right from the get go. imagine this is probably on your website yes yes the 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 gym and uh there's only two tracks I believe from this uh from this show but uh, the gym is definitely one of them
0: and that atmospheric uh dark kind of feedback leads right into the next I won't even call it the next song is like the next <laughs> suite, I guess or the next segment which on fish.in which is where I listen to it, Is the vibration of life into Kung into Catapult, which is a very mid 90s sequence. I mean, Trey even asks Fishman to stop playing the drums so they could do this whole weird spoken word piece that lasts about 21 minutes. This is not a small section of the set.
1: Yeah. I I think Trey kind of, I think the the gym jam kind of breaks down a little bit. I don't know if it's intentional or if it's just kind of what happened, but then you could see. Uh, like when you're watching the video, you can see kind of Trey kind of signal to Mike and, and Paige and they kind of stop, but Fish doesn't really see it. And he's still kind of just lightly going along. And that's when Trey's like, yeah, if Fish will cut it off on the drums here a little bit, just cut it off, Fish. And uh, and, then, and then he goes uh, into the uh, the explanation for the vibrational life.
0: Which is funny because they've been playing this since at least 94 and Trey yeah. does the same exact narration every single time, where he talks about yeah. seven beats per minute, and you know we're trying to uh, trying to get this to you. This was written by God, like that sort of thing has been heard so many times before. I wonder if it's just part of the song, such as it is, or the the poem, the narration, or if maybe there's this idea. And please correct me if I'm wrong that they're in Omaha, which, being from New York City, I think is of as the middle of nowhere.
1: Yeah, yeah am I wrong? No, it is kind of middle of nowhere. Uh, I view his explanation of the vibrational life, you know, like you said, kind of every time he does it, to just kind of explain what the heck is going on, because otherwise (laughs) uh, there's going to be like more than half of the crowd is just going to be like, what is going on? There's just like one consistent like beat that is it, it. It just kind of defies explanation if you don't really know what what it is that's coming. What we're going to do here is we're going to give you the vibration of life.
2: And uh, what it is is that the um, theoretical universal glue is um, a vibration that that beats at about 7.5 beats per second. So what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to give you this vibration that beats at 7.5 beats per second. And it's going to tune you up with the energy of the universe and fill you with incredible energy. You're going to fill your ass and then you uh, solar plexus. Exactly. Yes. You're feel it everywhere. So get ready to feel it. This is a vibration of life. Um, this was written
0: by God. One of my notes for Vibration of Life, I wrote this down, says it doesn't do much on a recording. What is it like when you're there? And then when you told me that the show is available on YouTube, I went back and watched it and Wow. What a different experience. <laughs> this is what attendance bias means. Because if you're just listening yeah. to this, this is bullshit. Like, this is garbage. It's boring. But when you yeah. see it happening in the crowd's reaction and Trey's body language, it's an experience. And it goes in immediate. Immediately, it segues into Kung. And I love that this has always stayed in the rotation. It's, I don't know. There's just something about this that works perfectly. These two spoken word against weird background noise pieces that fit together.
1: Yeah, this was a a special treat uh, for me, because like I said, um, you know, I was well versed in uh, live fish shows before I went to my first show. So when I got a vibration of life and a Kong, you know, during this show, it was just turning to my friends and just being like, I'm just utter, utter shock. I don't really know what to how to process this i never would have expected never would have said going into a show hey what are you looking to hear oh i definitely want to hear it come right um you're never going to say that because i mean you may as well say oh, yeah, i want to hear a dark star you know <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to play it and then this particular version is just demonic yeah um it is just creepy and um you know, they're screaming the, 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 the lyrics, uh, if you will, and uh, and Fishman's standing up and, and screaming his lines. And yeah, it's, it was a sight to behold. My friend
0: Craig or my friend Elliot, really, a bunch of us went to in 2004 to the show in Brooklyn, one of the two shows in Brooklyn. And it was raining. It was nasty. It was a gross day. And they decided, I did not, but they decided to eat a whole bunch of mushrooms. And one of my friends had never seen fish. She heard of them, but had never seen. And they went right into the middle of Kung. And (laughs) that was right when everything was starting to take effect. And when they're screaming, stand up from the hills. And I, I just remember seeing her giant eyes looking around, just saying,
2: what the fuck is going on right now?
0: Well.
1: Definitely, uh, I mean, Trey is absolutely egging the crowd on with this. And it's it's always so funny when you're actually seeing it because, you know, he's imploring everybody, stand up. Yeah, And it's not like there's anybody sitting at the fish show. So, like, everyone's already standing up and screaming. And so when they yell, stand up, really, people just scream more and raise their arms. And that's basically all they can do. They're already standing
0: And this venue was general admission. Trey makes reference to that, so everyone is yeah. standing up no matter where they are, anyway.
1: Yep, yeah, it was. Uh, uh, he definitely commented on that, uh, loving the 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 general admission shows where people can just kind of go wherever they want. Um, you know, it that was uh, it wasn't as common um, during those uh, during those fall uh, fall tour type of shows to have a general admission. You know, you could have a floor and seats generally, but, you know, there weren't necessarily uh, a straight general admission show.
0: And they close up this whole segment with a third spoken word piece of Catapult and Trey goes on his percussion kit. I want to ask you as someone who was there at the time, I know that people were kind of split in opinion on this. What were your thoughts on his percussion kit?
1: Uh, I I like the percussion kit when it's used like this where it's not in a standard part of a a jam. Like uh, during this time, Free, was uh, he would always go to the percussion kit, play kind of the feedback on his guitar, and that was predictable and what you would expect. I'm always kind of looking for the unpredictable, and Trey going to the percussion kit in the middle of this weird spoken word section really kind of spoke to me and I liked it, I I suppose, kind of just as much in a cool, I'm able to say that I saw Trey going to his percussion kit and uh, this happening. is something that uh like you said when you're just listening to it you're it doesn't really do a whole lot for you when you're there or see the video now all of a sudden you could see mike going to the front of the stage and bellowing out each line of catapult as he faces different directions each time (laughs) for, for each thing it was just it was the type of fish weirdness that uh that you're always looking for
0: after that whole segment, that weird, weirdo segment, they kick things into higher gear, which I think is the right move in terms of flow, in terms of energy with Axela. I wrote, What a kick.
1: Uh, this version well, I was gonna say sorry, I was gonna say, but before before that, um, after the catapult is the weirdest thing I've ever seen at a fish show. Oh, go for it. When uh because uh you know they do Vibrational Life, they do Kung, they do Catapult. None of that was the weirdest thing I've ever seen at a fish show. The weirdest thing I've ever seen was after the end of Catapult, when Mike goes over to his rig and pulls out some type of a, I don't even know what the heck it is, a veil, a scarf, or something, and he just does some type of, I'm going to use air quotes when I say dance, (laughs) um, out in front of the stage. And it was definitely one of those, I have absolutely no idea what is going on. And I could never explain this to someone who's not at a fish show. This that is was, why that was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. This
0: is why it's so wonderful that it's on YouTube, because you don't have to explain it. And I will yeah. check it. And those of you listening, you could check the show notes and listen to the fact check. I'll find the timestamp for it. The link will be in the show notes and I'll give you the timestamp so you can check it out. It looks like someone explained to Mike what dancing is and then showed him an <laughs> illustration of it, like those sorts of illustrations when you have to develop a patent with like labeled numbered parts and arrows about which direction they go and then said, okay, now
1: you do it. He most certainly did not see a video of that. <laughs> right. I think you're <laughs> exactly right. He, he, he read it. Um, it was like Chinese instructions and he was just like, yeah, this makes sense. I think I can do this.
0: But it is something to see, and I—I yeah. would—I don't think anyone would fault you for saying that is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show, and it only makes <laughs> sense that it's from Mike Gordon.
1: Yes, it does. It makes perfect
0: <laughs> sense. Well, then they go into the big kick in the pants of Axela.
1: Not exactly a breather.
0: No. Well, yeah, and <laughs> and the the previous segment wasn't a breather either. It was just yeah. kind of like a—I um, don't know—it was kind of Twin Peaks at a fish show. Yes. <laughs> But now this is straight ahead rock and roll.
1: Yes, this is like you said. This is a kick in the pants, unexpected again, and uh, this is probably one of my one of my preferred type of versions because it is an axilla part one for the vocals, but the axilla part two ending. Um, usually it's one or the other, but I don't know how many times they've done it like this. It, it it's pretty unique. It is, and it's the first vocal appearance
0: of a name that every fan is now familiar with. They start shouting Lee Fordham's name.
1: Correct. Yeah, they um, they they start doing that in the uh, in the outro section. They start by you know name checking Karota, and then I think they mention a few other people. But then when uh, the first person mentions Lee Fordham. They they go full bore into that. Fishman just starts screaming. um, (laughs) Lee Fordham.
0: I did a little bit of research on this and tell, have you read up on the story about why Lee Fordham's name gets thrown into this show? Because he appears not physically, but his name shows up again throughout the set.
1: No, I, I didn't. I didn't see. Okay. So
0: this is from Reddit. So take that for what it's worth, you know, with a grain, <laughs> a large grain of salt, but Lee Fordham, this is established that he was a part of the lighting crew. He worked with Chris Carota, and before this tour, the band and a couple of crew members were on a vacation. I think it was either in Cuba or in Mexico and they went out on a fishing excursion. And while they were out on the excursion, they found bricks of drugs floating in the ocean (laughs) and Lee Fordham wanted them to throw them back because he was nervous about going over different uh, through the borders. Yeah. So I don't know if that's what Lee Fordham sold me out though, but you could hear Fishman in this uh, scream about a boat trip. Yeah. So that's, that's, what's been pieced together, at least by random fans on Reddit can't confirm it, but I like to think it's true.
1: I think he does. Uh, Fishman does mention uh, Cuba during the intro ah. to the, uh, the next song that's coming along, so. which
0: is, which is Harry hood, which was a surprisingly smooth transition. I wrote that while I was listening, but when I watched it, you could see Trey is kind of running point. He's the quarterback here pointing at everyone and screaming the name of the next song. But if you're just listening, it's flawless anyway.
1: Yeah, they uh, it is exactly like that. When you're watching it, you can kind of see him throughout that uh, that whole segment, he's kind of calling out to um to different members of the band, like, hey, what's coming up next year? Do catapults and stuff. And then you could see him go over and uh call it to, out to Mike. And to, uh, and to fish, and uh, you're right, they just drop right into perfectly in the Harry Hood.
0: And they keep it going with Lee, Fordham, Lee, <laughs> Fordham, where do you go? Sorry again to all the listeners that I'm singing more than ever in this episode, but that's a joke to the beginning of this Harry Hood, but the jam is very beautiful.
1: Oh, it, uh, right after they start the, uh, the Lee Fordham thing, right before they go into the next little segment. It's before the Mr. Minor segment. Um, But when you're watching the video, you can see uh, Trey kind of look over to Paige right before they drop into the the little beautiful part. And just kind of a quick little shrug of the shoulders. And it's just kind of like, hey, you want to go tear this up? Yeah, let's go (laughs) destroy this. And then they just, just smoothly just roll right into it. And it's just gorgeous.
0: imagine that this is the other jam from this show that's on your website. It is. It is. And we'd be remiss to not mention that during this jam of Harry Hood, we all know the notes as they get to the end of the jam where Trey sustains this one note for however long it is. For this version, it must be close to what? Three minutes?
1: It's just under three minutes. I've timed it um, a number of times and it It's like just under three minutes that he's holding a single note. When you're watching that video, he's I don't know what he's doing with his hands. He's like trying to like acting like he's drawing stuff out of the guitar, raising the 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 fans up. It's pretty crazy.
0: when I was watching, I'm so glad you mentioned this, I really am, because when I watched it, it looks like while he's holding the note with his left hand, almost like he's bending it, and it looks like with his right hand, he's almost scooping up the sound, like in front of yeah. the guitar, like he's miming that there's like an ocean of sound in front of the guitar, and he's like scooping up the water and splashing it onto the crowd, like he just, like, he's like, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more. And he's just and he's the meantime, he's just letting the note sustain and it's driving
1: the crowd nuts. And the band is absolutely raging. Yes. Page in particular. Page is just pounding away. It's, it's like they don't even aren't even cognizant of the fact that he's still holding that same note. They're treating it just like it's any other hood and they are just banging away.
0: It's beautiful. It rounds the corner at about 12 and a half minutes and it leads to this big, powerful ending. I was speechless both times when I listened and again, when I watched it. You really made a great yeah. choice today.
1: Yeah, it, it is truly an amazing hood. It's kind of my ideal hood that doesn't kind of like that, that stays within the, the framework of the of the jam. It's just it has such a that peak is just so beautiful. Um, holding the note for uh, for the three minutes, uh, that's, how many times does that happen? Not very often.
0: Yeah. And right when Harry Hood ends, literally on the last note, is the first note of Susie Greenberg, which is a great call, because it's almost as if Harry Hood was the tension and Susie Greenberg is the release. We talk about tension and release in their jams. This is tension and release in their set list choices.
1: You could smell that Susie coming a mile away. (laughs) Uh, There there was no way we were going to get out of that arena without a chance reference what was being played earlier in the set.
2: And she's not of this earth. The woman walks the streets like she's the queen of the town. Doesn't talk very much. She's very pro
0: when they do that that's part of what yeah. made me fall in love with fish
1: yeah when they come in and they hit the uh there's the lagrange reference and then there's the axilla reference and those are those are absolutely my favorite uh versions of Susie.
0: and they closed the whole set with amazing grace which i thought was an odd choice they didn't do as many acapella songs at this point in their career they were never fully gone but by the end of 1996, it wasn't as common as, say, it was in 1994 or even the beginning of 1995. But I don't know. I guess it, you can't complain about one more song.
1: The acapella um, numbers at the close of a set—they never really—they're—they're they're never taking away any time that could have been used for uh, jams. Like if that had happened in the middle of the set, you'd kind of you, you know, raise an eyebrow at that. That's kind of weird. Um, But when it comes at the end of a set, I think it's a nice little capper and a nice little just kind of a nice little goodbye before uh, before the encore comes.
0: And they go off the stage and they come back almost immediately. The encore break is maybe a minute. It's really, really short, at least according to the video. And I think the reason for that is they must have rehearsed this song well before the gig started. They come on and play We're an American Band by Grand Funk Railroad. And this is the first time it's ever played, one of two, and they clearly learned and played it for the line of Four Young Chiquitas in Omaha. Trey even points to the crowd when he sings it. Great choice. And they were still on the stage where they would learn a full song just for one line to treat the crowd. They're back to that nowadays, but there was a long time where they wouldn't do something like that, where they wouldn't be as self-referential.
1: That, that that's spot on, and it's a great performance. You know, I say just pretend that Kid Rock doesn't exist, and then it's the <laughs> only time that that was ever played. That's probably a good rule of thumb, anyway. Um, but uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the set really has basically every aspect of the fish experience. Um, you know, it's got the ripping classic rock cover. It's got the runaway gym that gets kind of psychedelic and out there. Uh, it's got the bizarre narration um, that you're never going to see at any other type of rock show. Um, whatever the hell you call Axilla. I mean, that's <laughs> not really, <laughs> that, that, is, uh, that, that is not your typical song. And frankly, it doesn't sound like any other fish song at all. Um, and, uh, you know, then you've got the all time Bliss Peak, uh, followed by the Susie, and acapella. And then the geographically referenced first time cover, that's that—that's all the elements of a fish show. You might not want them all at the same, same show and at every show to be like that. But that's pretty much all that you're looking for in a fish show, all condensed in basically one set with no breathers.
0: In Omaha, Nebraska, no less. Uh, yeah.
1: And I don't remember what day of the week it was. I do, I do not believe it was a Saturday, but I could be
0: wrong. Well, Chris from Fish Just Jams, thank you a million times over for being on the show today, first of all, for November 16th, 1996, set two at the Civic Auditorium in Omaha, but a greater, wider thanks for what you and your brother do and what you have provided and serviced to the fish community with your site. I just wanna give you one more opportunity to give yourself a shout out. What is Fish Just Jams and where can it be found and enjoyed?
1: Yeah, um, again, it's it's, uh, just fishjustjams.com. We also have a free iOS app. Um, And then uh, you can follow our Twitter accounts. We are on uh, Facebook as well. And on Twitter, I just kind of tweet out different playlists throughout the day. Uh, obviously, you can uh, visit the site and cre- create your own playlist every single time you visit. These are just simple ones that you can click on and get right to. Um, so, uh, yeah, all of that's available at fishjustjams.com.
0: And that's it for today's conversation with Chris from Just Jams. It's been 26 years and also with a pretty obscure show at that. So let's double check our facts and figures with the attendance bias fact check.
2: Attendance Bias Fact Check
0: First when discussing how to differentiate and separate jams from songs in the middle of a tweezer fest Chris brought up the tweezer laden set from Merryweather Post on July 27th 2014 that show and that set in particular was covered on this podcast with Tim from Wook Plus Chris then brings up the more recent version but could not quite remember where or when it was played it was at the Man Music Center on July 19th 2022 When talking about the shows he saw in 1996, Chris mentions Jazz Fest. That show was on April 26, 1996 in New Orleans. Fish played a nearly two-hour set at the Legendary Festival. When listening to this set, I was surprised that Trey gave a whole explanation of the vibration of life, considering that they had been playing the song since at least 1994. Upon checking, The Vibration of Life debuted on November 23, 1992 in Binghamton, and has only been played 22 times in Fish's history. The last live performance was just a few days after today's Show, and it was on November 19, 1996 at the Kansas City Municipal Auditorium. The Brooklyn Show, where my friend had a freakout during Kung, was played on June 17, 2004, and it has since been released officially on DVD. And if you want to see the weirdest thing that Chris has ever seen at a fish show, Mike doing what could charitably be called a dance with a scarf, check out the link in today's show notes and fast forward to 29 minutes and 55 seconds. Enjoy. And finally, at the end of the conversation, Chris says that he didn't remember which day of the week today's show was played on. It was a Saturday. And that's it for today's episode of attendance bias. Thank you so much for listening. And one last reminder, If you want to support the show in any way, in addition to listening, you can follow Attendance Bias on social media, and you can donate financially anything you can spare at www.buymeacoffee.com slash Attendance Bias. Thank you again so much for listening. Thank you to fish.net. Thank you to fish.in. And thank you to Chris from Fish Just Jams. And I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias.